0: Welcome
2: to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome to the Why We Argue podcast, the Future of Truth edition. These episodes are made possible by the Future of Truth, a project at the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute, generously funded by the University of Connecticut and the Henry Luce Foundation. The episode you're about to listen to is part of a series on Seeing Truth, a museum exhibit and subset of the Future of Truth project that seeks to challenge audiences to see art, science, and truth anew in this political moment. In these episodes, Seeing Truth project leader and art history professor Alexis L. Boylan interviews artists and academics about the relationship between art and science, the role of museums in the production of knowledge, and how we use the visual to make meaning.
3: Hi, everybody. My name is Alexis Boylan. I am a professor here at UConn and the curator of the Seeing Truth exhibition. Before we get started, I also did want to thank the Loose Foundation, who has generously funded both the Seeing Truth exhibition and so much of the programming that has gone on around it. And encourage everybody, after you watch the video, if you just want to like think on it again and hear more um, of what Dexter Gabriel has to say about truth, you can feel free to listen to it on our podcast podcast Dexter I'm letting everybody introduce themselves mostly because I actually hate doing introductions and I feel like I always mess them up but also because I find it fascinating to see how people choose to describe themselves and this is particularly interesting because of who you are so do you want to introduce yourself whichever self you choose to do first or second is up to you
2: so hello, everyone. I will be introduced as Dexter Gabriel since my charming host already said so. Oh, yeah, uh, no, so I already, I already fine. sort
3: of messed that up. <laughs> that's fine,
2: But that's, that's normal. That's how you know me, right? It would be, it's that's like when I, name. when people would call me by the other name, sometimes I'd be who? Oh yeah. So that's normal. <laughs> so my name is Dexter Gabriel. I'm a professor of history at the university of Connecticut. I study slavery and the Black Atlantic, as well as emancipation throughout the Americas. And so that's my main job. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also, I'm an author who writes under the pen name Fenderson, Jelly Clark or P. Jelly Clark is often shortened. And I write short stories, novellas and novels of science fiction and fantasy, what people generally call speculative fiction. And so that's my other world.
3: Okay. So I'm going to first ask for clarification before I get to the really, the really meaty, mean probing questions. So you said you're like, some people call it this, some people call it that. It's generally called speculative fiction. Like, nice try. But like, <laughs> what do you want to call? Like, what do you call yeah. what you write? Because I, I have to say, I saw this very, I won't repeat it on this webcast because it got a little little racy, but it was about sort of what's the difference between fantasy? What's the difference between- That's a going
2: theme right now. (laughs)
3: Yes, yeah. So people are very clever. People are very clever. So there's very funny things. So what's the difference between like steampunk? Because I was actually thinking that some of your work could- sort of veers maybe a little, not steampunk in a maybe traditional sense, but yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. Like,
2: it could be steampunk. I have stories that could delve. There's a diesel punk, right? Because steampunk is supposed to be steam. So as far as using gas, it's diesel punk. And then there's
3: exactly there's
2: clockwork punk, right? So there are a lot of punks. Yeah, <laughs> it's no, it's true. And, so well, and, then fantasy
3: seems, and fantasy seems to be now like what's up for grabs, like sci-fi. Yeah. And there's a, there's a gender component to it. Like what? And co- there's,
2: there's a superhero component now. And I think because of film, when I was younger, I never thought there'd be so much fantasy of, of dragons and things on film. But oh my gosh. There's, there's more no than dragons I in ever everything. <laughs> right? <laughs> As a kid, I just grew up with the never-ending story and legend. I just had to be satisfied with that and the Dark Crystal. Now I've got everything at my fingertips. And so, you know, there, there's fantasy, which is supposed to often be this romantic tellings often of a pre-industrial society, but there are places that break that, right? There's steampunk that also interweaves fantasy, right? So that there's steampunk, but there's also magic and there's everything else. And it exists at a time that's uncertain, but fantasy has always been like that, right? We have Gandalf who dresses like he's from medieval Europe and the Hobbits who dress like they've come out of a 19th century <laughs> English right. village. Right. So fantasy right. has always been exactly that, a bit fantastic and then you have science fiction right which can arrange the gamut of the type of science fiction there's, there's like more light lighter fair science fiction and there's that heavy stuff the Arthur C Clarke and the Dune you know the Frank Herbert stuff and so and then you can get into like you said there are they're superhero film There's superheroes who fit into all those genres all at once at times right we have superheroes like Dr Strange who do magic and we have others like superman who fly and that's supposed to be scientific but it's not really fully teased out so is it science <laughs> is it not you know there's there's all of that going on and so all this to say there are all of these terms you get into horror right there's, i haven't even touched on horror or alternate history and counterfactuals right. and so there's so many different ways of telling ideas of the fantastic in science fiction and an umbrella term that i've seen used that i ended up adopting for myself is speculative fiction right that it is a type of fiction that adds in this element of speculation that deviates a bit from our from our understanding of the natural world right Mm -hmm. that could be very light touch such as through magical realism right right where you know maybe you have a ghost or something I'm thinking of like Toni Morrison's beloved where we enter it's the real world real happenings and then we enter in a bit of a a ghost story right to tell these larger tales and there are other things that happen that aren't exactly like our world right there are these little alternate things that happen or you have alternate histories where it looks like our world but something went a little different and all the all the science and the physics of our world exist here but the people aren't the same, the history's been altered, right? We don't exactly recognize it, and so my thing is, I said, because all of those things don't have clear boundaries, especially in my own writings, I slip and I slip in between them. I the boundaries are porous to me. I, I love bringing in a little horror into my spec into my fantasy or my science fiction. I don't care, right? I'm okay. going to pull from all these things. I think speculative fiction is a good umbrella term, okay? Um, it fits everything you could think of from James Bond with his gadgets right mm-hmm. all the way to the ultimate Lord of the Rings type works or as I said things like Frank like like foundation for instance right, right. Like those right. kinds of things it's I think this umbrella heading fits them all so I just say spec I say I always tell people I write speculative fiction you guys figure out what genre or genre okay. you want to place it in. I
3: think I mean, I'm just going to say this. I think it's very interesting that you like the term speculative fiction because and <laughs> um, it, it nicely sort of segues into actually all the rest of the questions I'm going to ask you, which is about this sort of to speculate suggests that like there are options on the table, but it also sort of suggests like if we speculate enough, we'll come to an answer. Like we'll come, like the like speculation yeah. is maybe a process as opposed to a like a destination. Lots of people who are academics write, you know, like write fiction. That's not, you know, like people who enjoy writing, enjoy writing in some senses, or people who hate writing like to punish themselves. And so they do it in multiple forms. So it
2: doesn't have footnotes. Yeah,
3: I know. Right. You're like, I'm free of that. But I guess I was sort of wondering if you can tell to use a speculative fiction motif or a trope, what's the origin story of the historian in you, versus the origin story of the speculative fiction writer? Because I imagine that they are intersecting, but actually not the same.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think, I think naturally, I, I I wasn't, when I was a six-year-old, I wasn't, you know, let me go find out the history, and let me understand the uh, historiographies. No, I was, like, I think like a lot of six or five-year-olds, I was interested in things that are fantastic, things that are magical. And so the speculative fiction enthusiast in me, I think, you know, I think was was there in the beginning, right? And so I would say that person came first in some ways. Yet, it wasn't until, as, as far as the historian in me comes about, I think that came about, I should say, that came about probably in school, probably, I think, around... I want to say it was around high school. My middle school history—I I was in Texas. You ever mm-hmm. seen a Texas history book? It's this thick. It's not interesting. <laughs> and so, I want to say in high school, I think I really got a bit more into history and started liking it mm-hmm. a lot more. And so, when I entered college, you know, I think I, I really became into it. And I think at some point along the way, I knew like, hey, I think I want to do this. I do think the speculative fiction writer in me, even though I was an enthusiast, the writer came after my decision to study history. And part of that was <clears throat> the writer in me didn't really have a lot of, I don't, I don't want to say faith in this. I'm not, so I didn't have a lot of understanding or thought that, oh, I can be a speculative fiction writer. That mm-hmm. just wasn't, that just wasn't in my, in my wheelhouse. It wasn't even in my, on my horizon of imagining, right? It was, well, I'm never going to, I'm not going to write a book. I'm just going to, I'll be doing this. And then sometime with, sometimes as I was into history, sometimes as a release, I started, really thinking about speculative fiction writing, I I dabbled at it before, but for friends or for family, my sister would make her little comic books, but, and actually thinking, oh, I could seriously write things and have it mass produced and have it out in the world where people would read that. I think that came after my decision to be a historian. And I think I want to, I, I would say that perhaps going into history and going into a field of writing may have inspired that. Certainly, my speculative fiction pulls from the histories that I've learned there, but I, I don't know what it was that why it decided to come after. But more, to, more so to say that I didn't see myself able to make a living, right? Right, fiction, right? Though well, some people might say, you but you saw yourself making a living as a historian. Yeah, I don't. I knew historians, I, I took the classes. I didn't know right. like fiction writers.
3: I was gonna ask you if actually you came to it, and again, I sort of, I work with Dexter, so I know this, is that you work a lot with popular culture. You you teach about film history and that sort of thing. I was wondering if actually it came through fan fiction, like, because I just, I do think that so many writers now yeah. sort of are getting their start in this sort of on online platforms and through right. fan fiction. And as someone who I know, you consume a lot of popular culture.
0: Yeah.
2: Did
3: that really ever feel appealing or did that just feel like that was somebody else's stories and you just weren't
2: yeah for the most part you know fan fiction was always interesting to me because I think before it was a thing my friends and I were always imagining something more right so I always want to say like I think I was doing fan fiction before it had a term before it was something that was written down Right. Even if we were telling our stories about the Incredible Hulk or something we watched the other day, or Mighty Thor comic book, we were we were telling our own different stories in there for various reasons. We were creating something new and something different. And so I think it was partly, you know, everybody can be interested in popular culture. And then you're interested in popular culture (laughs) that you really know. You've decided I'm going to memorize this the way I memorize baseball stats. I'm gonna actually notice thing. right? And I think right. that interest in, in the culture itself, I think you, you are touching on something there because I think it was in my interest and my familiarity with it that one day I said, what if I did this? Maybe right. I could Right. Right. I decided it seems- to go out and try.
3: I think that there, that there are some people who I think watch and just take it in as a complete yeah. thing. And then there are people who are, I mean, I, this is a very silly example, but I, I, I remember distinctly being a kid and not seeing myself necessarily in star Wars. Cause I also was, as a kid, I was very confused about like, not want, like, you know, in terms of gender, like there already was a princess Leia. I couldn't like, couldn't be her. She already existed. Like in my construct of of Perfect. truth and yes. you know and and seeing. So I I remember making a Solo sister character for myself. Like and sort of inserting. Yeah. But again, this sort of yeah. way of like I can't mess with the story that's already there, but I can make a new story.
2: Yeah. I can add to it. I can be part. I can find a way to be part of it. And I think so much of the best fan fiction or people trying to. Find out more about characters who you were interested in, right? Like, I want to know more about Lando and What's his background? Right. So I'm going to think about it more. And well, so but so, that's
3: what being yeah. a historian is, right? I mean, right? it's yeah. like totally the same, the same desire to sort of yeah. say, like, there are these people who have been, I mean, mm-hmm. it's not everybody's desire, but there are a way in which I want to hear from the people who have not, like, I hear the yeah. story you're telling me. Nah, I want to go someplace else with this. I want to go
2: someplace else. I want to hear voices that are hard to come by. And so right. I think one things I, one thing I had to learn I, I didn't realize until after I was doing it was that the art of history itself is a lot of speculation. Right, we, we are at times we we don't always have answers, and we're making these speculative guesses. Now I can't throw in werewolves in my history. I can do that with speculative fiction. So there's a difference on the spectrum of speculation. However, you know, I am engaged in that. I am engaged in trying to extrapolate and understand from people who did not believe, leave behind a record, or whose record was incomplete, right. or who maybe I don't believe what they wrote in the record. And I think right. there's right. a bit more going on there, right? And so I think as historians, we have to engage imagination. Otherwise we're kind of just transcribing what's right. been written and well, then what's the point, right, if we're simply repeating exactly what was written without giving it any thought or analysis?
3: Right. Well, I mean, that gets to sort of the next question I had. Many scientists worry and have great anxiety about the, that, that like, sort of element like that. You're sort of saying like, oh, history and this creativity have to go together because there's so much that we don't know. But there's a real anxiety about the role of art or creativity or imagination in scientific dialogues. I mean... One thing that's been consistently fascinating is how much scientists know about science fiction. But so I was wondering how you manage that. What does art and science, as fields or as ideas, how does that impact both your historical and your and your and your fictional writing? Like how how do those things come together? Because science always promises.
2: Yeah, science does have a great promise. I think. Yeah. So one, I grew up on a lot of science fiction, right? I grew up on Star Trek. I grew up on all of these things where science was always front and center. Right. I don't think like as much as I love fantasy, I also like science fiction. Like I, I, it was in, it was before there was a lot of fantasy on television. Your shows were nearly always science fiction. So I was always interested in science. As a kid, I was heavily interested in science. I was a space buff. My father is still a space buff. Mm-hmm. Right? Even though he, he's a welder, it is what his profession is. My father can still watch documentaries on astronomy for hours <laughs> on Netflix, right? So this is what, when it was came time to do an exhibit for school, I was doing an exhibit on exobiology or something, you know. So so I just always had an interest in science, I always liked science classes. I entered college as a pre-med student simply to study science. And, and it's a long time how I ended up history, <laughs> but. Yeah. I took a lot of science classes and I enjoyed them, right? So I always consider myself someone who enjoyed science and always liked science. And there's something about, even though it's different the way we pursue history, we're not using the scientific method, it's a different form of analysis. I've always liked science, search, this notion that if we keep searching and searching, we can find an answer, right? I've, I've always liked that. And I do find it interesting, as you pointed out, a lot of people were are scientists today Came about because they love spec, they love science fiction, right? Because science fiction did say it was this dream of like we could maybe be here, or we could do these uh, great leaps and bounds, these great fantastic things, and I think that that was really inspiring for a lot of people who want to be. I know part of my interest in science was that I could always pair it with the science, you know, the science fiction of space travel and wormholes and all those things, and I found out, oh wait, some of those might be there is a thing called theoretical physics where that come okay. Let's, Let's merge these two, right? And so I do think there's a way that they kind of orbit each other, this notion that science and art in many ways, because, yeah, I think that I would say also with scientists, I think they have to have that spark of imagination, right, in order to break with orthodoxy, in order to push through, in order to come up with something else, you you have to be able to speculate and see it first before before you can reach it, right? Even if you don't, even if your hypothesis turns out to be false, you have to at least have the ability to, to dream it up.
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. So I'm going to push you harder on this question of truth. Um, okay. uh, so we go. I know, here we go. Th- these are the questions I got to actually read. Cause they're like, because as usual, they're like actually seven questions, but what I do to my students, so I'm just going to hit you with it too. You write, and I would say that you inhabit two spaces that actually really, though, do try to get at truth in very different ways. So I was sort of wondering then, does a historical truth exist for you? Like what, what, what is it when you write your history? So I'm talking yeah. to Dexter now, like what is... And, and I mean, this is real messy business. Like, you know, we're all good Pomo people, like, you know, and, but then we're also like living in this moment where that's been turned against historians very politically. If there is no history, then I don't have to hear about slavery. Yes, it's always a no...
2: fog of incoherence. Who knows exactly,
3: what exactly. Like, using our own words against us is not yeah. very nice. And it is happening right now in our, in all our postmodern
2: country. now. As as <laughs> yeah,
3: exactly, history. exactly. But I sort of was interested in you puzzling for us a little bit about this idea of like what is a historical truth and do you think such a thing exists and how do you so actually I'll just give you that question first how do you in your own writing you have a book coming out soon like how do you if if, there must be something that you want us to know as a truth in your book so how does that exist and how do you locate it and how do you Uh encourage it in your historical yeah. identity
2: yeah so I mean as a historian we are taught that we are looking for some understanding of the past some kind of as you said truth you know nobody wants to use that word we're no. looking for some kind of truth let's use let's just use it now I, I won't get in trouble with the historian guild apprentices me you know, <laughs> out but we're looking for some form of truth and we're often looking for perspectives right we're looking at you know the great analogy of somebody walks in the room, and 10 different people will have 10 different stories about how the person walks in the room. As historians, we're often looking at all those stories and we're trying to sift through them and get at something. At the same time, and so we understand that truth is in some ways malleable right but at the same time we know when Napoleon did something and when he didn't right at the right. most basic things we know some of these basics we know World War II happened after World War I right there are certain truths that we take down because they simply align with the very laws of physics and time right and place and what have you and then we can get when we get into complexities because then we get into this notion is history objective or is it biased right And as I was telling my students, there are certain parts of history that might be objective, like World War II happens after World War I. Like I said, those certain things. Certain person won a war, certain person did This person existed and so forth. I said, but we all bring our biases to our study of history, right? My decision, as you said, to study what I study is itself a bias. The fact that I decide to focus on one thing and not the other is a bias. And I said, you know, I was trying to teach my students, I think because bias has a negative connotation that that's justly deserved and at times where it's used but i said bias is also our way at times of asserting what we might think is a moral truth right right i don't think like we're not we should not be getting into discursive debates on whether the holocaust happened <laughs> <laughs> right this is right. not up for a discussion or you know i perhaps want to hear the voices of ss guards or what have you of concentration camps guards to get their perspective as well that's that is not we're not arriving in a moral truth that way we're now saying that there's no what we're doing is we're taking out the context of power
0: mm-hmm. <laughs>
2: which is really important we're taking right. out the context of humanity we're taking out all of these different Context that have to be understood if you're going to understand that moment, right? And so it's not simply various actors telling you different stories. There are power dynamics, there are people's lives, and all of these things that are going on. And so I try to tell my students like, bias can be positive. <laughs> we can positively say, no, that was wrong, right? Slavery was wrong, the Holocaust was wrong it's wrong. And right. we can move forward there. We don't have to have these debates on whether they were right or not, right. and whether or not these are just two people having a discussion on both sides, right? That, I think, strips away the history from what it actually is. And it it's, it's actually makes it superficial.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust? Or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
3: Can I ask you, I mean, you have, as I said, you have a book coming out. What's the moral yeah. truth of your new book? What's yeah, the moral my, truth you were truth going after in your new at, book?
2: Um, my book looks at how, British emancipation in the Caribbean, in the English Caribbean influenced American abolitionists. And mm-hmm. one of my moral truths there is that, that there were two things going on. On the one hand, this was a positive. This was a positive movement for American abolitionists who were looking for a struggle. Who were looking for a triumph that they could mm-hmm. base their own their own push for freedom in the United States on. And at the same time, it was also problematic for the enslaved people of the West Indies, who became in some ways objects right. <laughs> for everyone to place these expectations on, right? So how well they performed would determine whether the United States would end slavery. That's, that's a lot of pressure <laughs> to put on, on people, right? And so there are these two, it's, this, it's these two warring forces that I talk about in my book. And, you know, part of what I point out here is that you know, even in movements like this where the good we can say is a positive good, it does come at the expense at times of others. And we have to think of those complications and then deal with them. And we can still say abolitionism overall in the United States was good, but we can still have these critiques of it at the same time.
3: Right. So how do you know what is a moral truth in your speculative fiction? Does that become an aesthetic issue then? Like is it a good book or a bad book? If it rings true, whatever, whatever that means or not, or is the whole point of speculative fiction to fundamentally like break truth, like to force the reader to break truth with you and with, with, with things that they know, how do you find truth in your fiction? How do you, how do you evaluate if you found your moral truth at the end of a fictional book that you're writing?
2: I think, One of the understandings is that, and this has been a debate, I don't know why it's a debate, in speculative fiction for a while now, like, are you bringing politics to your speculative fiction? What speculative fiction does not put politics to it? I don't, you know, like, don't bring politics to my Star Wars. You mean the one where the guys are fighting against the space Nazis? Is that it? Where there's a rebel alliance fighting against space Nazis? You don't want any politics in that or politics in Star Trek or... You know, or like you shouldn't bring politics to Lord of the Rings. You mean the one about the guy who has talking trees as a symbol of the ecology fighting against the industrialization of the orcs, is or who's worrying about his own PTSD from being in World War One and decides to put it in allegorical form? You don't want politics in that. And so,
3: totally like, different the from making. a black mermaid. You have to stop now. Yes, I mean,
2: <laughs> stop it. The black mermaid. So, my point is that all of these things are already bringing political truths to them. And so, I always say, like, when i'm writing of course i'm bringing i want some i'm trying to make some larger point and larger truth and it depends sometimes in some stories i'm being straightforward right in my stories for instance of the nine negro secret Lives of the nine negro teeth of george washington mm-hmm. i use a lot of fantasy and everything but the larger truth i'm getting at where i'm mixing history with fantasy and magic is to get people to think about what does it mean the great paradox right that the founder, the one of the founding fathers of the United States, probably the single figure people think of as the founder, is also a person who owned enslaved people. Is also a person who, in his in his ledger book, has that nine Negro teeth were purchased for him, right? And we know, and it all ties into mythologies we know about George Washington's teeth being wooden, right? And breaking with that. And so in that in that story, I'm I'm getting people to try to shadow through myths that they've heard that we all grew up with about wooden teeth just to get that just to get that out of the way. I, I'm, I'm also trying to get people to wrestle with the complexities of what does it mean if the this founding father, George Washington, is everybody knows he's in slavery, but let's talk about it a bit more. Right. I think people like in their distant when they say, Yeah, George Washington on slaves, but then they, they they muddle that part. And I'm trying to get them to actually think about it. So what happens though when you think he actually owned the teeth
3: um, and <laughs> human like,
2: beings, right? Yeah, and I don't know no, if he ever put it in, we don't know if he ever used them, yeah. but he likely owned them for that purpose, right? so I said, So yeah. what, is, what does that make you? And so I, I, and I wrap this into the histories of the 18th century of, of slavery in the Atlantic. I pull on the American Revolution and African-Americans who fought on both sides for the British, for the Patriots. And I try to tell this complicated story to get people to think about issues of slavery and the United States and its fou- and the founding fathers and what it means, this great paradox of a land founding on liberty and all these Enlightenment ideals, and yet held human beings as bond- in, in bondage. And so that's the moral truth I want people to get there. And so there's, def- I mean, it's it's like definitely that story has a moral truth. Then there are other stories, all right, where I am like Ring Shout, right, where it's too complex to even go into that. but. I'm skirting with some gray areas, right? I'm asking people to think about the nature of hate, right, right? and what hate might do to a person. People, people have come away with that story with different backgrounds. People have come up to me, and I don't want to give it away. They said she should have made the other deal, (laughs) you know. (laughs) And I want people to wrestle with what that means,
1: with
2: how much when I said, like in that story, I have a line like, "Who's to blame for the hate that hate made?" And that's a that's a that's a that's a discussion I want to have. That's a discursive thing. What happens? How do oppressed people react to their oppressors right. and what does that mean? Right. What is the what, what is their duty and how they respond? And what is the blame for their response? What are the origins of that response? And so that one, I'm I'm certainly throwing a lot of politics in there, but I'm not I'm not saying I have answers or even truths. Right. I want people to come away and tell me at times. I would say, like, you tell me, what did you think of it? What did you right. get out of what I said? And so it often depends the work that I'm going into will determine kind of this is what I'm trying to get across. And mm. look, I'm putting it all out there because I want I'm kind of I want to teach a lesson. Right. <laughs> and then there are others where I am asking questions because maybe I'm wrestling with these things. And wow. even if I can, yes, the Klan is bad, definitely. There's no doubt about that. And hate and racism is bad. I'm still asking these other complicated questions that I want the readers to get to.
3: Well, and I think then you have these characters that, I mean, just thinking about all your books, like that your characters are, they move in between, like being people that you're like, I'm rooting for you. And you're like, oh, oh, don't, no, don't do that. Don't, you know, like. The best they,
2: characters do though, right? right? Yeah. Best no, best characters I, make you so invested in them that you see them for their the good and you see them for their flaws
3: and right? watching them like watching them make a bad decision, like watching yeah. them walk up yeah. to that bad decision and just be like oh do not like in, you like, think about like, your own
2: past decisions right, right. like if you could meet your older your younger self and the things you would sit down and tell that person well right? and yeah. just
3: like the way that you have to imagine that your younger self there were a lot of people watching your younger self being like no do not <laughs> do that like,
2: yes, exactly so <laughs> but, obviously the best characters you know that up for people they bring up these these moral conflicts of i'm rooting for this person but you know this person isn't perfect they make flaws and mistakes and you you sometimes wince. there are times when i'm watching a tv show i'll fast forward past the part when i know they're going to make the mistake I was like, Don't. i can't watch it i yeah. can't watch and that means you've got me i really like this character now yeah this
0: character.
2: Um, no absolutely them rounded in such a way well-rounded in a way
3: well, I think it's interesting too, because I think that it is an interesting way to push your your what you had mentioned earlier was your first problem with history, which is that most of the actual real points of sort of choice we don't have answers to, or we actually have been blocked from hearing the voices that would have answers or different responses to them. So in that sense, it's also about sort of this, there is no reconstructing a history that has actually been, you know, disappeared or has disappeared, whichever way you want to phrase it in whichever way you're talking. You,
2: you, you, you have to engage in speculation.
3: Yeah. And so that, but then speculation, it has to have like a grip to it. I mean, I think, you know, with that short story, I think that for me, I remember reading that story and just feeling like feeling your teeth, like feeling just sort of this, like it reminds you of the, it's so
2: personal to you. Right, I think everybody can identify. Yeah, well, even though like I would try to explain to people the larger history. I'd say like, look, during the time people actually sold their teeth all the time. Right, and I remember I tried to explain so I said, and people sold their teeth, and this was a normal process. Right, so I don't want people to think that because I, I would read articles about this and it was based. Somebody said like, and I read this story and George Washington's was going around yanking the teeth. I said I, I never said that. I never said that at all.
0: In, but. but yeah. When
2: it, when I saw, but then when people were, I saw what people were thinking. I started, to, I stepped back and I said, okay, I have my truth as a historical truth mm-hmm. and what I know that people sold their teeth and everything, right? But when I would tell that to people, people say that's still not good. Why did they have to sell their teeth? And I'd say, okay, people are bringing their own understandings, right? And they're like right. pressing me and saying, I know you're telling me that this was this was normal, but why are you saying that normal is fine, right? <laughs> Right? Um, how so, do you make yeah. people
3: actually like understand? I mean, I think that yeah. it's so easy for us to divorce ourselves from our own physicality, our own right. body. I mean, like everything I think about power is always encouraging us to sort of, you know, distort our own relationship to yeah. our physicality. And, you know, I mean, I think that everything about the way, you know, that, that, that sort of that sort of the eyeglasses of death thing, you know, like that, that we, we have to look beyond ourselves if we're going to make it through a day without just sort of succumbing to a sort of existential angst but I think that one of the things your stories always do really well is and sometimes through horror I mean sometimes like that you know you do move in that way between like the sort of the horrific and the corporeal and the sort of more sort of spiritual but All right, I'm going to totally take us in another direction now, which is, and we're asking everybody to do this, which is to sort of look at the instigator items that we have for the Seen Truth exhibition. And did anything, you know, the point of the instigator item is a little bit like what you were talking about, this sort of like to try to get at a sort of moral a moral truth or a moral question that's being elicited from these objects but did anything anything speak to you either of you should i say Uh, does it feel like there's two of you walking around both of you actually
2: yeah what actually worked for both of me was the astrolab
3: of course yeah
2: because as you know that is something that i've put into one of my stories where one of my characters actually has one fashioned as a type of watch based on that and i've always been one i've just always been fascinated by them they're just Always these gorgeous little looking devices, no matter where you see them, like nice. that one is from Persia. And I've always been fascinated by them. And everyone knows them as this thing that's used mostly, it was used by mariners at the time to understand the stars. So it has everything I want in there. It has, it has people nav it has people traveling, it has people using space, right? Navigating by the stars and everything. It has, you know, so that's that's absolutely fascinating to me. And then what I've I liked about it, and I use this in my story, and I think it's Mm -hmm. discussed as well in this one from Persia, that it was not just used for that, but it was used by a lot of Muslim seafarers to understand where they were, like what time it would be back in their homelands or be in Mecca and so forth, so they could understand where they fit within the Muslim holy calendar or just daily for prayer or everything else. And I said, that's so profound that they were using this as this object to have them navigate, but they also needed to have this sense of identity when they were away yeah. from everything, right? To bring to them back to
0: yourself, place, right. to
2: hold them, right? Yeah, this grounding. And I thought like, they were like, without this, I don't know. And I thought about, yeah, you're out in the days, and you're not, you're just out in the sea. You have, you, like time is lost and they needed mm-hmm. to know that so they could understand, you know, how to continue to function and to carry on their rituals and to carry on their cultures as they would, no matter where they went. Right. And I thought about how this speaks so much to, I think, human beings, period. I mean, you could use that on so many levels that we're always looking to ground ourselves. We're always looking to find a way to keep ourselves grounded, no matter where we may go. And we think about, you know, science fiction going into space and so forth. We're always thinking about bringing here, (laughs) out there. How right. we we'll recreate certain things and how we hold on to "quote unquote" our humanity—it's like the huge thing in sci-fi, right? right? How do we hold on to our humanity? And I, so I, I saw it as having all these multiple layers, right? Uh, I think, in all of that is this notion of truth, right? Like, what, what, what makes you human? What is what speak? What truth is, do you carry with you? What speaks to you? And how?
3: Everyone wants to hold on to that. The American National History Museum owns a number of astrolabs. They're all also beautiful, like so yeah. much time and care. There's art
2: in it. Yeah. yeah.
3: The, you well, didn't but, have to
2: make them that fancy, but you did.
3: <laughs> there's no reason. There's no reason yeah. for it to be. I mean, it's fussy. It's this beautiful, yes. fussy, complicated thing. It has all this writing like it. Yeah. It's just gorgeous. But I think like there's no reason for it to look like that, except of course, if it's trying to do exactly what you're telling it, which is to wrap people back into a hand that made this. And like, I mean, I do love this idea of like trying to remember I mean, you know, I think we all do this. Like if there's a loved one in a different time zone, right? Like what time is it for them? Yeah. You know, like sort of locating that gives you this sort of sense of almost closeness with them when you're, yeah. you're not. But again, the sort of idea of understanding that I am here and they are there, which is of course, all you're doing as a historian too, right? Like I am right, right. and you are there and I can't a hundred percent see you, but this, this tool will get me there. So Yeah. So the last question, I like to end on something that no one has actually cracked yet with this question. Although I will tell you that everybody asks if they can give me two answers to it. And I have been ruthless in saying no, because it's not your one truth if it's your five truths. So my final (laughs) question is, tell me the one thing that you know is true. How do you know it's true? What evidence do you have for your one truth?
2: Oh, my one truth. This is something that, I don't even know how to say this exactly. I was pondering it with my wife and I were talking about this because we were thinking about family trees and history Mm -hmm. and I'm going to say this, but I don't exactly, I don't exactly have the words for it. So I'm saying this because I've heard people say this before, like we are our ancestors. People have said we are ancestors wildest hopes and dreams. Right. Mm -hmm. And I said like, no, I don't think that exactly yet. I think one could say we who exist now thus far are the ultimate expression of their being, mm. right? In other words, when you go and look in this family tree, you're like, oh, these are people like you and me. They, they were regular, even though even if they existed 30, 40, 60, 70, 80 years ago. And all of those people having to do whatever they did <laughs> ended up with me. Like, right. Like, I am the furthest along expression of that. <laughs> I said, that's kind of fascinating, right? That there's this there's this continuous chain and link. And I said, but it's complicated. Like when you say your quote unquote ancestors, what does that mean? It to be folk like, oh, people who you'll like, you know, they'll you'll see them in like Wakanda or something, and they'll all be there hanging out with you. But I yeah. said, no, it could be complicated. I right. suppose ancestors were jerks right maybe the way that they ended up being your ancestor i think of octavia butler's kindred right about a woman who has to go back in time and face the fact that she's yeah. you know one of her ancestors enslaved and the other one is the enslaver right right and the, and that's complicated and yet it's true it's a truth you exist because of all of these things happening not right. all good at all it's not like oh it was a great meeting <laughs> some of it was bad right? right and so i but i always think all of these things had to happen for me to be here right like all of those all of them existed and so forth and if they hadn't i would not (laughs) simply point blank i would not exist as the being that i am at this moment right some other version of maybe exists in a parallel universe but not in the way that i know myself right that person wouldn't exist so Um, is your
3: one truth like Is it free? It's
2: hard to to put into words right and I don't want to. It's like I don't want to like I guess people would say like I've heard someone say like some African saying was like, you are we are the furthest expression of our ancestors, something like that, but I want to complicate the notion of ancestors. (laughs) Well, I a,
3: yeah, but I have a yeah. question about like, so uh, it's interesting. So I can sort of then imagine that your truth leads to like, so I was thinking back about your idea of like a moral truth or a moral yeah. history. So what's the moral that you take from that? Cause I can see two, I mean, I can see a million different pathways, but the one is that you have a, that's like a lot of responsibility dexter like that's like that's <laughs> a lot of people who are standing yeah. there being like that's it that's all we amounted to <laughs> that's all we amounted, yes. no shade you're amazing but like i don't want like i don't want my ancestors yeah. like looking at me being like that well, first awesome. of
2: all some of those ancestors i'm yeah. like hey i'm you're in my dna but we have issues because <laughs> we just like octavia butler so right. you first of all take a seat <laughs>
3: Yeah, exactly. But say here. <laughs> it could but that's what I'm saying though. It could also be like a sort of like, yeah. oh, like I I have sort of no obligations because right. I'm just this collision of like toxicities of or of just random dna right like that it's like it, it could be the like ultimate you know like and it
2: could be it could be all those things depending on how you see things working i don't know that i have an answer right you can get right. spiritual and say there's purpose but then again i don't like some of those purposes so perhaps not perhaps it's just all random collisions and yet you're saying how do i know at the end of the day i'm here right <laughs> right i am here and i exist right and if i keep on tracing I am I am tethered to that, whether, you know, I'm tethered to, it doesn't have to be that I then feel that I have responsibility to live up to or anything of the sort, but it's simply knowing right. that all of this happened before me. And it makes me think of history, right? Why is history important in a sense that all of these paths came together, all of these clashes came together, whether for good, bad, or what have you, that right. uh, I am here now. And I always think it's fascinating because it tends to again it's grounding in a sense right and understanding how you fit into the world and I think we all want to know that when I go back to the astronaut people want to know how do we fit into the world where do we fit on the map of human history and historiography and I always think that every person out there right Right. comes from something comes from this this long cord this long chain that ties them back I think that's a that's a fascinating concept to me I don't think we think about it as much I think people are thinking more so the like you said, the weight of my ancestors may want this. And I'm not even thinking of all of that. I'm simply thinking of the fact of my own existence.
0: Right. Now, right.
2: now I have daughters so I'm like hey you know why you're here <laughs>
3: guess what <laughs> I think that's a perfect I think it's a perfect answer for all the answers you've given I mean it actually really does sort of come together in this really nice way well thank you I really appreciate the time and for everyone out there we'll put a million links to your books both okay. your historian self and your speca- speculative fiction self and I encourage everyone to go out there and read both brilliant brilliant Author in all kinds of genres. So thank you, Dexter. Thanks
2: a lot, Lexus. This was a lot of fun. Take
3: care. Yeah, it was. Take care.
0: All right. Bye.
2: Bye
3: Bye-bye.
0: You've been listening to a special seeing truth episode of the Why We Argue podcast, Future of Truth Edition. Many thanks to Toby Napolitano at the University of California Merced, who handles our sound. And thanks to our sponsors the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute, the Henry Luce Foundation, and Vanderbilt University. The Why We Argue podcast is a proud member of the New Books Network.